and it's to be freed from the trappings of this mortal body and this material world that a kind of floaty ethereal experience is where we're going to end up and then as christians we kind of borrow that and then we're kind of like man i don't really look forward to heaven i don't really look forward to eternity because we're just going to be floating around like ghosts that don't have bodies and we don't get to hike anymore we don't get to like there's no jet skis like there's nothing to do except float around on a cloud and sing praise songs all day but that's not how revelation describes our future revelation describes our future on earth but it's renewed it's a new earth and a kind of earth where you don't pack any of those sprays any of them you just go you just are and it's amazing we're going to look at that in revelation chapter 21 and of course it makes sense Because if God created all the world, and what did he call it in Genesis when he created it? He called it good, right? All the material things, all the animals, he called it good. The the mountains, the streams, the oceans, the sky, he called it good. So if man sins in the garden and kind of messes that up, And now the world is corrupted and our bodies are corrupted. And then Jesus comes and only saves our souls. And then the earth is destroyed. Gardens are destroyed. Botanical gardens are destroyed. Trees, forests, canyons, they're all gone. Stars, planets, it's all material stuff. It's all gone. And we're just floaty spirit beings. Didn't Satan win a little bit? He got a win. God created something good. Satan tempted man. Man ruins it and never gets it back. Revelation goes, remember the garden, remember creation, remember God created the lights, remember he created the streams, remember he created the tree, the trees and the tree of life, and all that was lost, we get it back, and then some. It's not a return to the garden, think of it more of like a garden 2.0, okay? It's still earth, but it's a new earth. Let me put it this way, those of you who understand the resurrection of the body, okay, we will be resurrected as Christ was. Now, when Christ resurrected, did he resurrect and walk around after his death when he was walking around and eating food? Was that a different body or his old body? Well, it was his old body renewed. But when they went to the tomb, they didn't, oh, there's the old body. He got a new body, a different one. He got a new body, but it was the old one renewed. Does that make sense? That's why it's, it's 2.0. It's not something different. It's the same thing. It's a new model now. Our bodies will be the same bodies, but without corruption. And that is the same thing that we're going to see with regard to the earth. Let's open it up in chapter uh, 21. This is after the defeat of Satan. I do think in this sense it's chronological because we've gone through the seven cycles. For those of you who've been with us from the beginning through Revelation, we've seen the age that we live in now, battling Satan, grinding it out as a church. We're getting persecuted. Some of us are getting killed. Uh, The devil is using politicians and worldly leaders, and there's all this stuff going on, right? It's demonic, and people want to kill themselves, but they can't. And we live in this crazy world, right? And we saw this seven times from seven different sort of camera angles. And then now we're entering the epilogue after Satan has been put down, the beast has been put down, Babylon's been put down, wickedness has been put down. Now we enter a new era, which is not a floaty place called heaven, but a material place called earth. 
Let's look at the first four verses. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so you see a lot of this imagery picking up from what we lost in Genesis and recapturing it and repositioning it, saying it's not going to be lost forever. The devil didn't win. We didn't lose what God, the good things that God granted us, and we get them better because we don't get 1.0 back. We get 2.0 now. It's, it's, it's a redeemed creation. And God in his wisdom has seen fit that we as humans have experienced pain and then get that pain and those tears wiped away than to have never experienced pain. And you've got to grapple with that as a Christian. The problem of evil, part of the problem is we just don't like pain. But on the other side of pain, something is there that's glorious. And we wouldn't have seen that glory in the same way had we not experienced pain. And here we see that, yes, we're in a time of tears. Yes, we're in a time of mourning. Yes, we're in a time of pain. Yes, we're in a time of the former things where we have lots to mourn and lots to grieve. But after that, brothers and sisters, there is a much, much, much longer season of only reflecting on that time and never experiencing it again. And so it's not a return to paradise, it's a better paradise. He's not deleting the old creation, but he's creating something new. Just to drive this home, let's put Romans 8 up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Romans 8, this is verses 18 to 23. Just to help you understand, this is, this is not, we're not going to move to Mars. This earth right now is going to be renewed. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, some of you, let's just pause right there. Some of you are like, does God understand the pain I'm going through right now? Paul's like, yes, you don't understand the glory that's coming. You think it's a floaty plate. You're like, I don't know how to play a harp. It sounds boring. There's nothing about harps. There's nothing about harps. It's a new physical, material experience, but without the pain, without the suffering, and you get to enjoy it in resurrected, incorruptible bodies. So Paul says that pain you're experiencing is real, but it's not worth, it's not compared, it's not comparable to the thing that's coming, the glory that's going to be revealed. What glory? Listen. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The earth didn't sin in the garden. Man did. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, God decided to subject the earth to the curse. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The freedom that you're going to get in your resurrected body, the earth is going to get that freedom too. And the earth is waiting for it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I don't want to get graphic, but Paul's comparing this waiting to labor. And if you've ever seen a woman experience the pain of labor and then have a second child willingly, you're like, is there amnesia? (laughs) The glory of the birth outweighs the pain of the labor. Paul's not erasing the pain, but he's saying we're, we're looking forward to something greater than the pain that we're experiencing. Is that much more glorious on the other side, that it's worth whatever pain we're suffering here? And he's not writing to people who are just kind of living in the mountains having Bible studies. They're in Rome, and they're dealing with real threats, real persecution, real pain. They don't have the dentists we have. They don't have the technology we have. There's all kinds of levels of pain as to why the Roman believers have it pretty bad. And he's talking about the weight of glory on the other side. But the point I'm saying is he's saying the earth is waiting for that too. The earth is also in labor going, oh, right, uh, waiting for that moment that something new comes. And that is not just our resurrection bodies, but our resurrected earth. Our resurrected earth. You should never, as a Christian, tell anybody, I'm not looking forward to eternity. It's just, ah, you know, I want to, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do here? I want to play golf. Great. Imagine the, the greatest green you've ever played on, okay? Imagine it bigger. Imagine it better. Imagine actually being a good shot, okay? This, this is greater than what we can imagine. And so this is not something that we shouldn't, should not be looking forward to. This is, this is an ultimate peace and completed experience. And what he's channeling here in the beginning with this new creation idea is the fulfillment of Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, if you want to mark that and take a look at that later. But he talks about, then he talks about in the midst of this new creation, this new earth, the city comes down from God. And it's not just a dwelling place for the people of God. The city is the people of God. So we're not looking at this passage going, huh, am I going to live in the city? Am I going to live outside the city? Do I get an apartment? Is it a condo? Like, how big is the city? Do I get a mansion? How does that work? You are the city. And let me explain that briefly to you. If you look at verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the husband? Pop quiz. Y'all know the the Sunday school answer. Go for it. Jesus is the husband. Who's the bride? The church. What is the bride in this passage? Is Jesus married to a metropolis? Is he married to buildings? Is he married to streets? Is he married to a, a street grid? No, the people are the city, see? It's, it's a symbol, just like dragons, frogs, <laughs> you know, locusts, the horses with serpent tails. We're like, wow, so evolution's true. It, it's, it's symbolic of what's happening, okay? And what this is saying is there's going to be a final people of God as opposed to the harlot, as opposed to that beast-riding prostitute that was corrupting the earth and fooling people into worshiping anything else other than God himself. And Jesus is like, nope, I reject the harlot, and I'm preparing for myself a bride. And that is a people, not a city. That might be new to you, but I ask you to look at verse 2 
and see that he's equating the city with a bride and the husband who is clearly Jesus Christ if you look through the bride imagery of scriptures. So this is about a people of God belonging to Christ and belonging to God in covenant relationship with him. And when you are in Christ, you you are wed to him as a betrothal. You remember some weeks ago we talked about the betrothal period. It's, it's stronger than an engagement. But you are, you are committed to this groom who's going to return and marry us. Okay, that's, that's the imagery. And when you are in Christ, you're, you're wed to him as a betrothal. But the wedding is what we're looking forward to. Him coming back in that, that grand wedding in the end is what we're looking forward to. And what, what's the feast at that wedding? the final communion meal or the ultimate communion meal that we just shared that is a a preview of that final feast. We looked at that before. But the wedding is what we're looking forward to and when the wedding comes, there's no more distance, there's no more planning, there's no more preparing, there's no more getting adorned. That's sanctification. Those of you who remember your wedding and all the planning that went into it, okay, if you planned it, hopefully it was at least somewhat planned, There's flowers, and there's cake, and there's photographers, and there's people, and there's families, and this family doesn't like that family, and where are we going to sit, and where does the groom stand, and where's the pastor, he's late, whatever. All of the planning, all of the preparation, that's the mode we're in right now. It's work, it's tough, it's labor, but we're getting ready for that wedding. And then when the wedding hits, all the planning is behind us, and we enjoy Christ fully. This is about belonging to God wholly and fully. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not a a physical city. It's people. And that God dwells with the people. He doesn't have to be contained in a temple anymore. He doesn't have to be contained behind a curtain anymore. He will dwell with his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The effect of that wholeness and that finality is that there's no more effect of the fall in the garden that there's no more effect of sin, that there's no more effect of corruption. Every tear that is a real tear, a genuine tear, genuine pain, is wiped away. The suffering that we've experienced, the losses that we experience, the grief that we experience is no more. There is no more death, and there is no more crying or mourning or pain. And I think you take those three together because it's pain in relation to, to hurt and loss. It's not you know, pricking the finger It's not that we lose physical sensation. Oh, we lose one of our senses. I can't feel pain anymore. Uh, No, it's the pain that's in relation with the mourning and the crying and the loss and the persecutions and being torn away from your family. But you'll never attend a funeral again. You'll never take out a life insurance policy. You'll never write a will. You'll never think about leaving an inheritance. You'll never visit a hospital. Certainly not a hospice. A more fitting to the context, there is no more persecution. There's no more arrests. There's no more executions. There's no more oppression. But more broadly, there, there's no more mass shootings. There's no more cancer. There's no viruses of any kind, even the computer kind. There are no natural disasters. There are no man-made disasters. 
There's no global warming. There's no global cooling. There's no global weirding. There's no more global anything except global perfection. And as exciting as all of that is and as hard as it is to imagine all of that, and we'll return to some of that in a little bit, but let's not lose sight of the, the, the focus of the joy here. The focus of the joy here is presence with God himself. He is the center. And so you see that continuing in verses 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now we covered that. Last time, the last two times really, right? That's the bad news. That's what's awaiting us if we're not in Christ. But the emphasis of this passage is what is awaiting us for those who are in Christ. These don't make it, and that's what we were before we met Christ. We were all cowards and immoral. But in Christ, we're changed and we're different. His name is put on us and we are sealed for him. And God's presence is going to secure this for us. In verses 5 to 7, he's saying, it is sure to be done. It is as good as done. You don't see it yet. It might be hard for you to believe that it's coming. We only know this corrupted earth. But Jesus is saying, as, as sure as I died on the cross, as sure as I resurrected, it, I'm, it's sure to happen that this new creation will be here and the former things will pass away, even though it's only for uh, those who are in Christ. I just want to pause again and say, I, don't, I want you to listen carefully. Don't be a part of the I should have listened crowd. Cling to Christ by faith, believing on him for forgiveness and trusting in him for salvation now and this future is yours. It's not just salvation from personal sin, as amazing as it is. All of our personal sin, all of the suffering that we bring on ourselves, all of our own shame and wickedness, that is removed from us as far as the east is from the west and we'll fully realize that then but it's also a bigger picture than that it's all sin it's all evil it's all dangers even this dwelling that is represented by uh, the the new jerusalem is picturing a dwelling that is perfectly secure and untainted by any dangers whatsoever let's read 9 all the way through 27 okay 9 all the way through 27 And it's describing lots of things here, but I want you to see the emphasis of a well-secured city that that has no threats of any danger at all. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. There it is again. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We're returning to that city. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. We'll get back to that. Its length and width and height are equal. Can you just note that real quick? The length, the width, and the height are the same distance, the same measure. Verse 17, now this is a large angel, and there's a very large golden rod that he's holding. Verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's so much to unpack there. I won't be able to unpack every single thing, and that's one of the reasons why we've got the Q&A going in a couple, uh, uh, next, next Sunday night, so please come on out to that. But I want you to see that the imagery here is showing us a place of security, a people that are secured, not a city that is actually made of gold. Now, could it be a physical city made of actual gold? Yes, it's possible. Can God do anything? Yes. Do we miss the point? If we're like, oh, streets of gold, I wonder if I wear a certain kind of shoe, does it mark it? Or are we barefoot the whole time? Oh, my goodness. The revelation just went right past you. I don't care if it's a physical place. What I care is if you understand what the symbols are communicating. And when you understand that, I don't think it matters if it's a physical place. I don't think it's a physical city. I think the city is the people. Just as there's no need for a temple because God himself is the temple. Now the idea here, I don't think is to give literal dimensions, but to point symbolically to a meaning that we're supposed to grasp. Now I just want to take a, a quick uh, moment here it take me a couple minutes but i want to help you understand why i think this is figurative and not literal and why we miss the point if we focus too much on the literalism of the city as we already noticed the city is already the bride the people of god so i think that's the immediate cue right there the city is a people everything following is figurative it's symbolic but maybe you're not convinced he also emphasizes the great high wall in verse 12. The city is surrounded by this great high wall that has 12 foundations and it has 12 gates, right? Um, so the city wall is built on these 12 foundations, verse 14, and it is 144 cubit thick or high. Now, some say it's, it's 104, that's 216 feet. 
This wall is 216 feet, feet thick. That could be. But most of the times in the Bible, walls are described in height. It would be kind of different for John, and I'll change it to thickness. And if he did, he'd probably say thickness. So you're imagining height. Now, when you're trying to assail a city, height is what matters. It's not the thickness that you can't penetrate. It's the height that you can't scale. Our ladders aren't that tall. Our catapults don't throw stuff that high. It's too high a wall to breach. See? So I I think it makes sense to see it as a 216-foot wall. But when you look at the length of the city, the breadth of the city, the height of the city, back up in verse 16, it is 12,000 stadia. Now, you might have a footnote in your Bible that translates that to you in terms of feet or probably miles because it translates to 1,380 miles. That's how high the city is. That's the height of the city, 1,380 miles with a 200-foot wall. Does that make sense? How do you protect the city this big with a wall? Why does he even have a wall? We're living in a time of peace. The gates are left open all the time. Why is there a wall? Do you see what I'm saying? Now, is it possible that it's literal? Yes. And some of you might afterwards, in the middle of your taco, you might be like, Pastor, listen to me. It's literal. And I'm going to say, fine. But you bear the burden of working that out, sitting there with your diagrams and charts I don't have to worry about that, and I don't think we're supposed to be worried about that because it's figurative. It's figurative. 144. 144 is a multiple of 12. How important is the number 12? How many times have we seen the number 12 through the Revelation? I had a whole sermon on it a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 1 about the importance of the number 12. I refer you back to that, so I don't have to do it here. But you see that the number 12 is a crucial number. 144 is a multiple of 12. And it's 12 is throughout Revelation uh, because it represents the completeness of God's people, God's kingdom. That's why the wall is founded. It's the foundation of the people of God is the 12. That's why they couldn't do what they were doing in Acts with Judas missing and they got Matthias in there. Now we're 12. Now the kingdom can expand. 12, 12, 12 is the people of God. We're over here with measuring rods. That's That's not it. Also, If the gates are never shut, I think the gates are never shut, verse 25 is where it says that, because the gates symbolize all the nations having access to God in perfect fellowship. The nations aren't storming the gates anymore. They're coming in to worship the Lord now. God's people is made up from people all over the place now, not contained to one ethnic person or one national entity. Why is there any wall at all if evil has been put away? Because it's symbolic of peace. It's not telling you how God secures the peace. Oh, wow, that's all you need, a 216-foot wall? That'll do it? Wow, God's a genius. God is the security of the people. God is the security of the city. The wall is symbolic of the security. And I know I'm belaboring it a little bit, but I just want to just try to drive this home with another point. We have the city dimensions here, and these city dimensions are so large, it stretches even the modern imagination as to how it can make sense. The 12,000 stadia, is about 1,380 miles. Let's just say that's a little bit off, and let's just call it 1,300 miles. That's how long the city is. That's how wide it is. That's how high it is. And let's think for a minute. If you take that literal city and put it in the U.S., I'm not saying if it is a literal city, it'll be in the U.S., probably Jerusalem, right? But but if you, just for scale, if you put it in the, the United States and one edge of the city 
is in Chicago, then the city goes all the way to Salt Lake. It's past, actually, Salt Lake City in Utah. Just imagine the United States, of those of you who remember your geography class, and how big of a city the one city is. Um, now, some of y'all are like, cool, Californians get left out. And I understand that, that maybe it's real, man. You know, they don't make it. I don't know. But, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a large city, it's hard to understand it as a city. And then the real kicker is how high it would be, okay? It's how high the city would be. The tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa, which is over half a mile tall. The city goes way past that, right? How, how tall is Mount Everest? About five and a half miles. Five and a half miles. 1,300 miles. Commercial jet airplanes cruise at about seven miles above sea level. I guess they're not flying over this city. All right, let's go way up. How high do meteor showers occur? That's at about 50 to 70 miles. Meteor showers, 50 to 70 miles. Some of us are going to be in our, our golden apartment looking down. Look, a meteor shower way down there. I can hardly see it. It's farther to us in our apartment than it is the people that are on the surface level of the earth, by far. Let's go up. How, how high is the International Space Station above the earth? A measly 250 miles. International Space Station has to find its way around the city, by far. And that's still in the, what, what scientists call the thermosphere, right? Our satellites orbit in the space above that called the exosphere, which is between 450 miles above the Earth to around 6,000 miles above the Earth. And scientists debate whether we call that atmosphere or space. And the, and the satellites are orbiting in that realm, and the city tops off somewhere in there. That's really, really, really tall, guys. All right? Now... I think the point here is not literal dimensions. I think the importance is 12, God's complete people, together with the symbolic weight of 10. We've seen 10 often through Revelation, and 10 means completion or totality, right? Prior sermons dealt with that already. Well, 12 times 10, three times. Another important, well, you actually have three gates on each side. So those important numbers are combined. The 12 is an important number, 10 is an important number, 3 is an important number, and they're combined. 12 times 10 times 10 times 10 gives you the height. We're not supposed to be here trying to figure out, okay, okay, I, I think we can reroute the satellites. I think we can do it. We're supposed to go, man, God's people is complete. He's brought everyone in that he's going to bring in. They're going to come from all over the globe, all over the world, and there's perfect peace. No enemies, no one attacking the wall. It is perfectly secured by God. We're not going to be there going, wow, I live on the bottom floor and this guy gets to live up in space. What happened there? That's, that's not what's happening. As Robert Gundry puts in his explanation of this city, he, he writes this, listen, John is not describing an eternally secure place. He is describing an eternally secure peoples. And that's what we look forward to is the security, the peace. Then the descriptions of the surreal gems, I'm not going to walk through those, but these gems and these materials, they go beyond what we're able to envision. They, they evoke majesty and glory of God, the beauty and the splendor of dwelling with God. In verse 18, he says gold, but then he says it's transparent. Gold, transparent? I've seen polished gold, shiny gold, clear gold? Like what, what manner of gold is this? Each gate, 
in verse 21 is made of a single pearl. That's a 216-foot wall, and the gate is made of a single pearl. What is the first thing you think of where that pearl came from? What size oyster was that? Where are these oysters coming from? John is rolling his eyes at us, I think. When we're like, oh, and then they carve it. What do they do with all the carvings out of that pearl? That's kind of wasteful. Where's all the pearl leftovers? I think it's silly. Can God do it? Yes, God can do it. He can create oyster. He doesn't even need an oyster to create a a pearl. God can do whatever he wants. But I think we're missing what this city image is communicating. He's communicating treasure and the, the the sheer lack of poverty. And we don't miss anything. We have no want, no... Nothing to long for or desire. We have the richness of the treasures of Christ. And the 12 stones that are described in this verse, they channel a few Old Testament passages, but one of those is the high priest who had the vest, the, the ephod, with those 12 stones in it. Then he went to God on behalf of the people to do what? To do what? Secure peace between God and the people. And he's like, the city's made of the whole thing. It, the whole city is a priest unto God. We have peace and access to God. There's no curtain, there's no temple, and the gems are everywhere, man. Right? We have perfect access with the Lord, as opposed to the Old Testament, where they're yelling at Moses, don't have him talk to us, have him talk to you. And then even Moses didn't get to see his face. So this twelveness is emphasized in the gates of pearl, it's in the foundations, in the stones. The people of God are founded on God's election, his providence, kept secure and built to completion. This is what you look forward to, not something that's insecure, not something you hope you get, like putting money into Social Security and then wondering in the back of your head what, what's going to happen to your retirement plan that has all these question marks in it. There are no question marks. It is secure, it is complete, it's founded on the 12. The open gates are open to all the world because the church began with the Jews but brought in people from all over the earth, and that includes us. These gates are perpetually open. These open gates speak to literal things, literal peace. I think we are going to dwell in homes, but now think about this. Dwelling in homes with perfect security means that we don't have locks. It means that we don't leave, we, we can leave, you can leave your doors open. Your front door to your house, you can leave it open. Your windows are left open. If we need vehicles, they don't need alarms. You don't own a safe. There are no banks. What's the purpose of a bank? What's the purpose of a vault? No one steals anything. You can take all your stuff and leave it on your front porch for all you care. It's a place of perfect security. And so... We're trying to stretch our imagination to imagine a world that's not a floaty place that you don't want to go to or don't, you don't want to be there. It's an earthly material place where there are no police, where there are no fire stations, where there are no ambulances, where there are no medics. Some of you are like, what's going to be my job? I, what's going to be my job? All you are going to be perfect preachers. <laughs> I don't know what God's going to do. But it's, it's hard to imagine this place of, of perfection, of of total satisfaction this is harder to imagine than transparent gold or a city that protrudes into space there's no need for panic ever did you lose something there's more of it or you have forever to find it it'll turn up did you lose someone others they're walking around somewhere in an incorruptible body they're not hurt you'll find them there's literally no need to worry 
Will we even lose things? With our brains, resurrected brains operating at full capacity. It's hard to even begin to imagine this. You're, you're hiking along some beautiful mountain path, and there you stumble across a mama bear with her cubs. Now on the old earth, you reach for your bear spray. On the new earth, you jump in and start wrestling around with the cubs. <laughs> you jump on mama bear's back, you're like, let's ride, you know. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's hard to imagine it. But if we don't force ourselves to try to imagine it a little bit, we won't get the excitement that John is laying out here where we are in a place where there is no pain, there is no death, there is no suffering, and as much as that stretches the mind and prompts so many questions. If you're rock climbing, do you need a rope? I, I, I don't know. If, if we have vehicles, uh, do we need seatbelts? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how that works out to, to have bodies that are incorruptible. But that's what Scripture describes. And this is not about how new creation will look. It's not giving us all the answers we want. What's going to happen with this and what's that? And what do our houses look like and that kind of stuff? It keeps bringing your attention back to what? The security that's provided by the one who provides that security, the the Lord himself. So we don't look for specific answers. We're looking for this eternal era that's going to be marked by perfect protection by God, perfect satisfaction in God. Let's finish with these five verses. I know we're going long. These five verses at the top of chapter 22, and then next week we finish with the rest of 22 and bring Revelation to a close. But we'll move quickly through these five verses. Let's read it together. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. There's 12 again. Yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The river of life is just that. It's a picture of God providing flourishing, abundant life in nonstop, everlasting flow to his people. You can go to Ezekiel 47 on your own time. There the prophet sees a river flowing from the temple that is so clean, so pure, so powerful. The river flowing from the temple hits the Dead Sea. You all know the Dead Sea, right? Why is it called the Dead Sea? It's so full of salt. There's no animals in there, right? You You definitely can't drink that. Ezekiel sees this river flowing from the temple, and when it hits the Dead Sea, it brings it to life, and there's fish swimming around, there's birds flying around, there's life, abundant life in that Dead Sea because the river touched it. It's such a miraculous river that it touches death, and life can flourish there. And I think Jesus is that river. That's how God provides life to his people, through the Holy Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ. God provides to us life. And death is reversed. Corruption is reversed. In the Old Testament, you don't touch a leper, but Jesus will touch a leper and the leper is gone. In the Old Testament, you don't touch a dead body, but Jesus will touch the dead body and tell the little girl, grab her by the hand and tell her, get up. And then the little girl gets up. Death is reversed when Jesus touches it. Jesus touches blind eyes and now they can see. He touches deaf ears and now they can hear. It's that reversal. So Jesus is the life-giving water that turns death to life so that the new earth, the new creation is marked by this never-ending stream of life 
in Christ. He does this by pouring the Spirit of God onto you and in you, but it is only available in Christ. If you don't love Christ, you'll hate the new earth. But if you cling to Christ, the new earth is yours. Why? Because we have to frolic in streams and play with the otters? That's a really, really marginal benefit. But because we get to dwell in perfect harmony with Jesus Christ, what would it be like to no longer pray that portion of the Lord's prayer that asks for forgiveness? It's such a common rhythm of our lives, but we won't be asking for forgiveness into eternity because we'll be brought into this perfect place of satisfaction where that stuff that we mourn and grieve over is behind us. And we'll worship him in purity. We'll worship him seeing the face of God, seeing the Son of God. We'll look upon him and behold him as we worship him. Here's the point. We face many hardships in this old earth. I know what some of you are going through. I don't know everything that everyone's going through in here. But we face many hardships of different kinds in this old earth that we're in right now. But we can endure it. We can endure all hardships now. Why? Well, in part because we're looking forward to a perfectly satisfying life with Christ on a new earth. And if that's not your hope, I pray that you would join us in that hope before the day is out. Let's pray. Father, as we, just in a few moments, um, gather around the table to enjoy fellowship with one another, we pray that our hearts would be full of just the, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that we'll be thinking and meditating on the hope that is before us, the glory that is going to be revealed, and so that we wouldn't despair of the suffering that we experience now. Um, give us what we need to endure it, and we pray that even now as we sing, that our hearts would be lifted up, encouraged, and filled with hope that only Christ can provide. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in this song.